You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. This is Paul's letter to a church in Ephesus in the first century, and he's, he's writing, and, and he, he outlines the book really well. The first three chapters are theological in nature. The second three chapters are application-based, and so we're taking our time going through those things, and we want to draw out some of the rich and deep theology, uh, particularly that's in these first three chapters. And in chapter one, we're calling it volume one, uh, we're looking at the fact that we are worshipers. Uh, the book of Ephesians really calls us to an identity, to understand who we are, And um, the first thing we need to understand is the fact that we are created to be worshipers, and we need to understand rightly uh, who we worship. Um, When when I was a kid growing up, I I grew up at at Middle Fork uh, Baptist Church. That's my wife's hair. Sorry, ADD. I didn't need to tell you all that. But um, I grew up at (laughs) at Middle Fork Baptist Church, and um, I, I... I always just sticks in my mind. I remember there was this like picture kind of behind the pulpit up here in front of the building. And it was what I call Jesus's senior picture. You guys remember that picture? You know what I'm talking about? Blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, uh, really white American Jesus. And, um, and there was just a big portrait of him. And, and when I became the youth pastor and the, you know, they gave me crazy enough to give me a key to the building. Um, I was, I was in there a lot, like by myself. And I was always creeped out when I was in there by myself. Cause I felt like white Jesus's eyes were like following me, you know, like I didn't know what to do with that. And then um, after I finished seminary and we decided we're going to plant a church, I was like, man, we're never going to have a picture of Jesus because that will scare people. And, you know, I go do the stained glass, you know, we're going to be cool and have garage doors and stuff. And, um, and then, and then we ended up with our Valley campus and at our Valley campus building, those of you that uh, had been in that building, there's a, like a giant stained glass, a portrait of Jesus. I called him Heisman Jesus. Um, cause he was like cradling a lamb, like a football, you know, like, and, um, and so then I was, there I was again, you know, feeling like he was following, you know, his eyes were following me all the time and stuff and just creeping me out. And, um, and so these kind of images that we have of Jesus probably don't, um, don't help us in our understanding of, of who Christ is. And so it's important that we get this right. And so when we talk about worshiping Jesus, I deeply and desperately want you, church, to understand who he is. And I'm not talking about what he looks like. Like we, right, we don't have the details of his facial features and uh, skin complexion and things. We know, we know he wasn't white. We know that much. But, but as we imagine Jesus, if you're visual, that's not harmful for you to do. That's okay. But I, I want you more deeply and more accurately to know who he is as your God, why you worship him. It's important that you um, ascribe deity to him. There was a, a study done, and it was released um, last week, um, it was a partnership between Ligonier Ministries and a Lifeway Research. Um, you can find the study if you're interested at thestateoftheology.com. Thestateoftheology.com has the results of this, and um, the results are, are pretty alarming. They, they interviewed and, and did a poll of, of American adults, um, general population, and also compared that to a poll of American adults who identify as evangelical Christians. That means someone who believes in Christ for forgiveness of sins and also feels like they need to tell that good news to others. Um, As an evangelical Christian, we would say we're evangelicals. But this study concluded that 43% of evangelical Christians, not general population, 43% of evangelical Christians believe Jesus was a good teacher, but he is not God. 
Let me clue you into what that means. They're not Christians. If, if, you don't, if you don't worship Jesus as God, you're not a Christian. What it means to be a follower of Christ is to acknowledge and trust in Jesus as he truly is. It's incredibly important that we get this right. Now, conversely, um, they, in, in the same study, uh, compare this to 94% of the same crowd, evangelical Christians, saying that sex outside of marriage is wrong. I would affirm that. They got that one right. The majority got that right. And what that shows me is that um, those in America who identify as Christian have figured out morality without figuring out God. They figured out what the rights and wrongs are and the list of do's and don'ts are without actually figuring out who it is that gave them morality. And this shows us that there are a lot of professing Christians that understand morality, but they do not understand God. Uh, see, right, right belief is what we would call orthodoxy, and right practice is what we would call orthopraxy. And this study reveals that most of us, if we're honest, believe that orthopraxy, doing the right things, will lead to orthodoxy, believing the right things. But the Bible, I think, paints a very different picture, that you have to believe the right things if you ever expect to do the right things. You see, biblically, the order is orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. We have to acknowledge, first and foremost, that Jesus is not just a man. He's our Savior and God. We worship him. That's why at New Heights, everything is about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1, the, the gospel author says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in that same chapter, he tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Word became flesh. The Word didn't become God. He has always been God. The Word is the Son, and he has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus does not have his beginning at Christmas. Jesus has fullness of deity, meaning he's always existed. He's always been God. And so he didn't start at Christmas. He's the eternal God. He's always been, he is now, and he always will be God. No man has ever become God, nor ever will become God, but God has become man to save us. This is the great mission of God that we're brought into, that we get to peer into the goodness of who he is, that God became a man in order to save man. There are two main things I want to show you about Jesus today uh, before you go on your way this Lord's Day. Um, two verses in the text we're going to look at. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. In verses 7 and 11 particularly, I'll draw out the two points of today's sermon. Both of those verses begin with the phrase, in him. It's a reference to the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So as we spend time um, last week, this week, and next week looking at the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're dwelling as a church on who we worship and why we worship him. We worship a God who is three persons, yet one God. And today we're going to dial in and lean into looking at who the second person of the Trinity is named Jesus, the Son. Verses 7 and 11 say, in him we have certain things. And so the two sermon points are this. Number one, redemption through Christ forgives your past. The first thing we have in Christ is redemption. The second thing is inheritance. And inheritance through Christ secures your future. That means that, that everything in our entire lives is wrapped up on getting this question right, who Jesus is. And it, you may have come in today with lots of different views. Maybe, maybe your church you grew up in had a senior portrait of Jesus, you know, 
Jesus 33 in the bottom corner or whatever, um, whatever that looked like. And maybe you have preconceived notions, but I want you to just kind of come with a blank slate and let's look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about Jesus. So let's look at this first point. Redemption through Christ forgives your past. Redemption seems to be the main theme of God's revelation in scripture. I would pose to you this statement for you to write down or take home. Jesus is the focal point of the Trinity. You see, um, Jesus is, the, is what God is all about. The Father is bestowing glory upon his Son, and the Spirit is drawing men and women to salvation to and through Jesus Christ. Um, and false teachers, when they go astray from what the Bible teaches, what false teachers normally get wrong is Jesus. They normally go astray on the, their teachings and their view of who Jesus is, who the Son is. Um, we talked last week about um, a group called modalists uh, who sus subscribed to an ancient heresy known as modalism, and their belief is that God was Father initially. He became the Son in Jesus, and then Jesus ceased to be God, and he changed forms into the Spirit. Um, a lot of them are charismatic Pentecostal, or, or they're called oneness Pentecostals. One of, one of the most well-known ones is a guy named T.D. Jakes, who's from West Virginia, but he's a oneness Pentecostal, and he's a modalist. That's heresy. That, that, that belief that, that God has changed forms over the time is ridiculous. And Ephesians 1 shows us that it's not true. Um, you have other uh, cultic groups like Jehovah's Witness who deny the deity of Christ or the Mormons who say that Jesus uh, became a God, that he hasn't always been God. They, what they get wrong is the second person of the Trinity. And if we get this wrong, then we get everything wrong. We have to know who Jesus is and why we worship him. Again, being the focal point of the Trinity, the Father creates and bestows glory upon his Son. As a proud Father bestowing and building for, um, for his Son, the Father does this for Jesus. And the Spirit regenerates people and gives them faith and convicts them of sin and draws them to faith in Jesus. Let's look at verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, the, the word redemption means to, uh, to, to render a payment. It means to be set free or liberated by a payment. Um, you, even, we even use this language if you have a gift card or a coupon, or for you fancy people that put your pinky up when you drink tea, a coupon, um, you redeem that for a product or service, right? And redemption or redeem, it, it, it implies payment has been made somehow. And so if you have a gift card, you are rendering payment, but the payment's not coming from your bank account. It's coming from the bank account of the person who purchased the gift card for you. And you see the payment for sin um, and, and what, what the Bible is built on this idea of redemption is about the payment of sin. And the payment of sin has always been from the beginning death. Think about to the Garden of Eden when, when God speaks to um, Adam and he says, you can eat of all of these trees but there is one that you shall not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it, don't eat from it, lest you what? Die. So he tells them the penalty for disobeying me, the penalty for sin is death. Always has been, always will be, the penalty for sin is death. And when, the, when Adam and Eve sin, God provides a sacrifice for them and an animal skin, an animal that dies so that they can be covered, so that they can be clothed. I think that's foreshadowing and teaching God's people that they need to be covered by the death of another if they're ever going to be in fellowship with God again. You see this echoed in the Levitical law. In Leviticus chapter 17, God speaks and he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it 
for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Even as the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was in place, every time the people of God sinned, an animal had to die. Without blemish, they would sacrifice that animal. They would see the blood spilled so that they could be reminded that the cost, the payment of sin is death. Always has been, always will be. The author of Hebrews expounds on this. I'm going to reference Hebrews chapter 9 a lot uh, today, actually three or four times. Um, But Hebrews 9.22, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so there's a price that needs to be paid because there is sin in the world. You ever been billed for something and you wish you could get it back? I, we, we stayed at a fancy hotel one time and I opened the fridge and it had like LED lights in it and it was just like a fly trap and I was the fly and it just drew me in and, and it was like a smart fridge and they had water in there that was high caliber from like a glacier or something. Um, I called it Perrier, but I think it was Perrier. And you pull that out of there. And I, I wasn't going to drink it, right? Because I knew it was probably the world's most expensive water. But the fridge was so smart that when you picked it up off the shelf on the fridge, all these lights started going off. And it was like, thank you for your purchase. And, and it just billed you immediately just from picking it up. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? I want to put it back and get my money back or something. And, but it was too late. Like the, the, the transaction had went into cyberspace. And so I, I just drank my Perrier water and enjoyed it. It was the best bottle of water I've ever had for $9.95. And, um, and like, you know, and like one time I went to Seanette's and they had a sign when you walked in that I clearly ignored. And, um, and it said cash only or credit card machines down. And so I'd eat my meal and the meal's already been eaten, right? You can't give it back. And I go up to the counter and like trying to pay my, my bill. And they're like, well, we're cash only, no credit cards today. And I'm like, well, I'm credit card only, no cash today. And we just have a staring contest looking at each other. Like, what are we going to do now? She's like, well, wash it. Go, go back and start washing some dishes, roll up your sleeves. Right. And because I'm Will Basham, they trusted me to go to the ATM. They knew I'd be back. Um, but once something is trans, the transaction has happened, there is a debt that is incurred that can't be undone, right? It's just there. And when Adam and Eve ate from that fruit, there is a sin debt that came into humanity that came upon them, death, and was passed down to their children and their children and eventually to you that you stepped into a sin nature and then just like signing the back of a check, you endorsed it because you liked it. You liked the benefit of your sin and the pleasure that you got from it. And all of us have found ourselves now being jacked up sinners, loving the sin that we're in, but then also realizing it has brought upon this generational debt that we can't get out from on our own. That creates a predicament, right? You see, death and the Father's wrath are invoiced costs that are there for mankind's sin. Hebrews 9 speaks about this too in 9.27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, Jesus, it says, paid For the sins of many. When Jesus is on the cross, one of the seven sayings that he cries out from the cross is, It is finished. Um, This is one of the most beautiful things that Jesus said. 
In Greek, it's tetelestai. You may have heard our pastors reference this before. It's an important word because tetelestai has a lot of meaning in it. In this, in this one word that Jesus cried out, there's a lot packed into that. Um, in the first century, if you wanted to go and buy a camel and you didn't have the cash flow to pay cash for a camel, you would go to your local bank um, and when you went to buy that camel and you talked to the used camel salesman and you, know, you couldn't do transactions with him directly, he had to go talk to his boss in the back because that's something that's been established since the beginning of time apparently when you buy used cars or used camels. And he'd come back out and he'd say, hey, we, you're pre-approved. We're going to you know, go talk to the bank and we, you can get a loan to buy this camel. And so you would get that loan through a local bank and they, just like today, they would draw out the terms of the note and how many payments you would make and they would make an amortization table and they would give you the money in advance and charge you interest and you could make payments on your camel while you ride your camel to work and everything. Well, then when you pay it off and you want to buy another camel, right, you have to be able to prove to the next bank that you're a man of your word or a woman of your word and you're able to make your payments. And so um, when you would pay that note off, what the bank would do is they, they would stamp or write across that note. They'd take that amortization table and they would write to Telestai. It is finished. The note, the payments are finished. It is finished. And they would take that and they would nail it to the wood around the doorpost of their bank. And that was the first century's version of freecreditreport.com so that other people could go to the bank's doorpost and they could look at it and they could say, well, this man has paid all his payments. And so when Jesus cries out to Telestai from the cross, it's not just, it's, it's not a confusing statement for the people that heard it. They're not wondering what's finished. He's crying out an accounting term. He's crying out financial things from the cross. Why would he do that? Because a debt had just been paid. It had been paid for. It had been paid in full. And what did he pay for? It says he had paid for the sins of many. Now, it might be, it might be a tempting thing to be discouraged by that, but that means when Jesus says he pays for the sins of many, that means he's not paying for the sins of everyone. He's paying for the sins of the elect. We talked about election and predestination, and God's sovereign choosing last week, and we're going to see it again in today's text. But what that means is that when Jesus is on the cross and he says paid in full, he knew what he was paying for. He wasn't just throwing a bunch of payment out there, hoping it would stick somewhere, hoping that one day I would hear it at Middle Fork and walk an aisle and kneel at an altar. But what he was saying was that Will Basham's sin has been paid for, paid in full. And guess what? All of my sin at the time that Jesus paid for it was future. That means what he paid for, the sins that I have not yet committed, Jesus has already paid the penalty for those. He's already, he's already stood in my place and taken that sin upon my shoulders, which means that when I come to worship, I don't have to come with my head hung low, but I come in repentance with my held, held, hand held high because I know that God has forgiven me and adopted me as a son in his kingdom. That's good news. I mean, I don't know where you are today and how you come in here, but some of us come in and, and we feel like maybe we've done too much or messed up too much that we have to somehow earn our way back into God's good graces. Let me just tell you, that's absurdity. That's not how Christianity works. I mean, imagine if you guys played this game with people, like you go out to lunch with someone, you're like, let me get your lunch today, man. And he's like, no, I want to get your lunch today, man. You're like, no, 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 I really want to get your lunch today, dude. And he's like, no, I want to get your lunch today. Let me just tell you, I will not play that game with y'all. I might answer, if my checking account's okay and healthy, I might offer one time to buy your lunch. But if you say, no, let me get it, and I'm saying, thank you. I'm just going to take it. I'm not arguing with you about it. I'm just going to take the free meal. That's how I roll, okay? 
Just tell you, I'll be polite and everything. I'll be grateful, but I'm not going to argue with you over it. But imagine that, that I take you to lunch and I pay the bill for you. And you say, let me get your lunch today. And I say, no, I actually already paid. It's Seanette's. It's cash only. I brought the cash, baby. It's all paid for. And, and it's done. How crazy would it be for you to go and pay for the meal again? Seanette's would probably let you do that. But it'd be absurdity, Right. But many of us treat our faith like that, that we have to earn our way back into God's good graces when Jesus cried out from the cross, it's finished, to tell us that it's paid in full. And that way, when we come into worship, we should come with a depth of understanding that Jesus has paid such a great cost for us that we could have blown it from last Sunday to this Sunday. It could have been filled with sin all in between, but we come knowing that he had already forgiven us. And it doesn't give us a license to do whatever the heck we want. It gives us a gratitude of our life that we want to honor him because he paid it all in advance and did this great grace for us. You may say, well, what makes Jesus qualified to forgive sin debt? Well, first of all, he's perfect. He's God. This is why it's so important that we understand the deity of Christ. He is God. As the second person of the Trinity, he is perfect. He lived a perfect life. His righteousness is without end, but also because of this, he is incredibly rich in grace. The second part of verse seven says, according to the riches of his grace is how he forgives sin debt. He forgives according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Verse eight says, which he lavished upon us. This tells us that, that Jesus is rich in grace. You, you guys know wealthy people that are cheap. You know, that's how they got wealthy. Like I always like look at people. I'm like, how, how you got so much money and you're afraid to spend it? And then it dawns on me. Like, that's how you got so much money. Um, but, but our God is so rich in grace that he, verse eight says he lavishes it upon us. I love the word lavish because it sounds like what it means. It, it, it comes from a, a, a Latin word that means to pour over, wash, immerse, or baptize even. Um, and so he pours out this grace upon us. And he's gracious and loving and forgiving and generous with it. I always think of when I think of the riches of God's grace. I don't know why this is my weird brain, but you guys remember DuckTales at the beginning of DuckTales when Scrooge, the rich uncle, like has a diving board in his vault and he jumps off the diving board into the giant sea of coins. First of all, that would hurt a lot if you dove into a sea of coins. But it, the idea in DuckTales is that Uncle Scrooge has so much money that he just swims in it. Um, well, this is the family we've been adopted to in Jesus and our big brother Jesus and our heavenly father that we've been adopted into a family that is just rich with grace. All the grace we could imagine, really more than we could imagine, is ours, not in ourselves or what we've done, but it's ours in Christ. You see, Christ's righteousness is the source of his riches. And Jesus' perfect life leads to his atoning death. And this was all the Father's plan all along. The plan has always been redemption. And, and I think the longer we're a Christian, the more we see that, that, that our story of redemption is really just part of a bigger plan that we could never comprehend. I always tell the story about my wife and I going to Disney with our kids. And our kids just asking constantly, where are we going next? What ride are we going to ride next? What are we going to do next? When are we going to get food? When are we going to? And we just began to say over and over and over to our kids, trust the plan, because we just got tired of telling them, trust the plan. And that is a great mantra for Christians, that we trust the redemptive plan of God because it's so much higher and so much better than we could ever imagine, ask, or think. In verse 8, it says, 
in all wisdom and insight. This is what Jesus has done. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so we see that the story of the Bible from Genesis chapter one to Revelation chapter 22, the story of the Bible is the father's plan to bring glory to the son through the spirit. And the way all that happens is a thing called redemption. And it forgives us of our past. It pays for our sin and it brings jacked up sinners like you and me into an eternal family. Let's look at the second thing. Inheritance through Christ secures your future. So not only is your past taken care of and your sin cast as far as the east is from the west, but you are given an inheritance that secures your eternity, your future. Um, inheritance in this passage, in verse 11, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It's the Greek word klerao, and it means to assign something to someone by casting lots. Now, we've actually lost exactly what casting lots was. Um, I always imagine and, and kind of visualize uh, the casting of dice, because um, that's probably maybe one of the closest things we have. Most people think that it was even like bones or uh, wood chips that they would kind of shake up and cast and maybe a circle drawn on the ground or different things like that that was kind of like a game of chance and they would use it to actually make decisions, okay? Not what I would recommend for your decision making, right? You're trying to plan some serious things in your life or who you're going to marry or what your kids are going to need. You know, I wouldn't recommend, you know, just rolling dice for that to happen. But it's interesting that this word became synonymous with inheritance over time. And, and, and it even in English, it has the connotation of allotment. Even the word lot is in it. To allot a piece of land and an inheritance to someone um, has this same idea. But the idea that Paul's going for is not that we've been given something randomly, but rather that we've hit the jackpot. Rather that we've been given an inheritance that's so crazy that we could have never earned this on our own. It had to be uh, given to us through the riches of grace. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now the inheritance language that's used in verse 11 is rooted in the adoption language that we looked at last week as Paul was describing who the father is. The father is, a, is an adopting father, adopting sinners into his family and turning them into saints. And so when we look at the inheritance, I know all of us are eager to ask, well, what's the benefits of this inheritance? What do we get with this inheritance? Well, what we get is the covenant that God made and gave originally in the first covenant in Genesis to Abraham. When he made a, co a covenant and a promise to Abraham, what did he promise him? He promised him a family that he would be the father of a nation. And he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So not just one nation, but a nation that transcends all nations. And, and he promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, which by the way, they keep finding more of them and, and the grains of sand on the seashore. And he also promised him that he would have a land to dwell in. He gave him a, a physical piece of land. But in this new covenant, in this more full covenant in Christ, what we have is the original covenant, even greater realized in Jesus. A place to dwell and a family to belong to forever. That is ours in Christ. He has done away with the demand of eternal wrath that was on us in the name of justice, and he has given us what we don't deserve in a place to dwell forever and a family to belong to forever. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the called that's referenced in Hebrews 9 references back to the beginning of chapter 1 when Paul says that those of us who are Christians have actually been elect and predestined before the foundations of the world. Verse 11 echoes that same sentiment, the second half of the verse, saying, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Bible's very clear and filled with election language that if you are a Christian, you chose to be a Christian, but Jesus chose you first. First John 4, 19 says, we love him because he first loved us. The Bible describes you as dead in your trespasses and sins before Jesus made you alive, before the spirit quickened you and dead people don't do much. You were chosen before the foundations of the world. And here's that word again in verse 11, predestined, which means decide beforehand. Remember the illustration from last week, we don't like when people decide things beforehand for us. Like when I take my family to a restaurant and I say, we're going to have seven waters. And they're like, oh my gosh, what did dad just say? We can't drink seven waters. We need pop, right? We don't like it when the father chooses things beforehand. And I get the uncomfortable nature of that. Okay, I feel that. And again, it would lead some of us to say, well, what if I'm not chosen? Or what if I'm not elect? Let me just remind you that I believe that people who are not elect don't ask questions like that. And so if you're wondering, am I chosen? Am I elect? Let me tell you what to do. You ask for forgiveness and redemption, and I promise you, you're elect and you're predestined and you will not be turned away. Um, one of the things that, that I'm probably really bad at, but I think I'm really good at, is, is rejecting people. Um, when, when there's something that comes up that I have to say no to or um, some invitation that I have to decline. Uh, there was a pastor one time that, that told me, I'm about to give away my secret, so I'm sorry if I've, if I've used this phrase on you, but um, he told me that he asked for something one time from a colleague, and the colleague said, I'm really honored that you would ask me to do this, but it's just not something I'm going to be able to do at this time. And the guy was like, I was so happy that he was honored by my request that I didn't even care that he rejected me. So I started using that all the time. So like, Leslie jokes around with me, and she says, you always say honored. You say you're honored by everything. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, I am honored, but the answer's no. Um, and, and I think I thought of that, and I, I'm, a, I'm a messed up human. Like, I, I got a lot of weird stuff in me. I got a lot of flaws. But let me, just, let me just put it to you this way. God is not like me. Praise Jesus. Amen. God, God is not going, at the end of time, there are not going to be people that come to the gates who said, hey, I chose Jesus. I repented of my sin, and I trusted in the works of Jesus rather than the works of myself. Can I have eternal life? And God's, God's not going to look at them and be like, listen, I'm really honored that you would want eternal life, but it's a no for me, dog. I didn't choose you before the foundations of the world. You weren't predestined. I'm sorry. You just didn't get picked for the team. You know, I think sometimes when we see predestination and election in the Bible, we think it's like that. We immediately go to the negative and we begin to imagine people just begging to be Christians and God saying, nope, you weren't picked. That's not how God operates. Listen, I promise you, every person who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus is given eternal life. God says yes to them all. God grants them the things that they ask for. John 3.16 is still true. Romans 10.9 is still true that if we ask for forgiveness, we are given forgiveness. 
God doesn't turn us away. He doesn't say, I'm honored, but no, dog. No, he gives freely and lavishes upon us this grace that Jesus paid for on the cross. And how we reconcile those things, listen, I just don't have the time nor the knowledge to adequately unpack that for you, but I trust it because the Bible says it. And what that leads to, and you may say, why does all this matter? What's, it even, what's the importance of this? What it leads to, the longer I'm a Christian and the more that I begin to process and understand the depths of how God saved me and how much I can't comprehend it when I come and lift my hands in worship and raise my eyes to glory and redemption Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it is so much sweeter when I realize it is nothing of me and it is all of Jesus. He's the one who is saved. He's the one who gets the credit. He's the one who gets the glory. It's not because I've made a better decision than the people that aren't here today. It's because God has looked favorably upon a sinner like me. And that's available for you too. If you've kind of crawled in here and you're not living to honor God, let me just beg you, can, can you turn your life to Jesus can you acknowledge the great lengths that he's gone through to pay for your sin? The bill's been paid. Stop trying to pay it yourself. Turn it all over to him. Repent of your sin and trust Jesus the rest of your life. Verse 12, we'll finish with this. It says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. When he says the first to hope in Christ, he's referencing the Jewish people. He's referencing an ethnicity of people. He's going to talk more about this, and there in turn I will talk more about this when we get to chapter 2. And he talks about how Jew and Gentile, these two ethnicities of people, have actually become one in Christ which casts down and dispels any hint of racism that might exist in our souls or in the life of the church. But what we see Paul referencing is that the Jews and then there in, in turn the Gentiles who would come to Christ, look at the end of the verse, that the reason for it all, the end of it all, might be to the praise of the glory of Christ, the glory of God. See, his point here is that whatever road leads us to Christ it is to the praise of his glory, not ours. Not that, man, I was doing really bad and then one day I started doing better and I got it all together. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. That is not the purpose of your testimony. The purpose of your testimony is so the eternal son, the God who's always been, Jesus Christ could receive glory from saving you. And whatever path led you to God was planned by God. By the Father, for the glory of His Son, through His Spirit. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.